Nearly one month ago, I was sitting in my office here at church, and I received a phone call from my aunt informing me that my father had passed away sometime that previous night. I was shocked, and still am. How could this happen? How could he die? I had just spoken to him a week or so before that. He seemed fine. I don't know what changed. I later found out that he had pneumonia, and he was already an asthmatic, so the combination of those two together apparently sealed his fate. Now, I got down on my knees to pray, though I don't remember what I prayed exactly or if I even prayed at all. For the most part, I was just stunned. Right away, I called my wife, but I could hardly talk. I was so choked up. Then came another phone call from my other aunt, my father's sister, then the coroner, then my father's significant other. It was not fun. Tears came in spurts, and I pretty much spent the rest of that day on autopilot in a mix of pain and disbelief. What was God doing in this situation? This event happened on a Friday, December 3rd to be exact. Following Monday, I caught a plane out to Nevada to take care of whatever my father's affairs I would need to take care of. Things like visiting a funeral home, ordering death certificates, doing next of kin stuff, trying to locate a will. Some of you in here have done that. It's not the most pleasant experience. Fortunately for me, my uncle was able to join me out there and he greatly assisted me in these tasks. I accomplished everything I needed to do promptly out west and returned home on Friday, December 10th. If you remember, that's the weekend we got hit with our snowstorm. It was also the weekend of our kids' Christmas program here. And I remember that's the weekend when poor Dan and Becky Nelson missed their flight and had to stay out in beautiful Colorado to be in the mountains for the rest of that weekend. That poor family. I still feel very bad for them. Just a little co-worker humor. But since that time, I've been reflecting on my father's passing, as well as what I believe to be true about God, Christ, sin, salvation, heaven, hell, so on and so forth. My message to you today is a, a product of uh, some of these reflections as a kind of personal problem of evil through which I'm working. You see... My father may not have been a Christian, and unless he had a thief-on-the-cross experience just before he died, I don't have a lot of hope. The Bible teaches there are two, and only two, destinations of the departed, heaven or hell. Contrary to Roman Catholicism, there doesn't seem to be a third temporary state or purgatory where people can be purged, that's why it's purgatory, of their sins before entering into heaven. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is destined for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. In Luke 16, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It's interesting that he doesn't introduce this as a parable, though it may be. In any case, when Lazarus, the poor man, dies... He is immediately caught up by angels and taken to heaven, or as it says, Abraham's bosom. It's a heavenly state or a state of comfort. 
The rich man finds himself in Hades, sometimes translated as hell, a place of conscious torment. Notice I didn't use the word torture, which suggests a kind of unjustified punishment, but torment. The destination of each individual follows immediately after their deaths. There is no hint of a temporary destination in between. Finally, Matthew 13, Jesus explains the parable of the tares when he says, At the end of the age, the Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of the kingdom all stumbling blocks, those who commit lawlessness, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These scriptures, I think, make it evident that there is no third location where people go for a temporary state. This is to say that, uh, not to say that there's not further scriptural support. To Telestai, Jesus said on the cross, John 19.30, it is finished. Or in 1 John 2.2, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the theological doctrine regarding the absolute sufficiency of Christ's atoning death. So if there is no third location, then it stands to reason that my father is in and or is experiencing either eternal bliss of the saved or the eternal torment of the lost. There is no third option. Which we usually talk about these things in church freely, except in my case and probably in many of yours. You may know somebody about which this makes this question quite personal. So I would like to divide that up and talk about it in two questions. First question, what if my father is in heaven? Well, if my father is in heaven, I know he was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I should be very happy at however God accomplished this, for I know it is only he alone who has the means to do that. And despite how bleak things appear in my own mind, I am not willing to say that just because my father was beyond my saving, he is therefore also beyond God's. As Isaiah says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not so short that he cannot save, or his ear so dull that he cannot hear. And who knows what God might accomplish in the heart of a man, particularly before his last moments on this earth. But what of the second question? What if my father is not in heaven? Or, let's not sugarcoat the question this morning. What if my father is in hell? Then what? Well, as I see it, there are two perspectives by which I may approach this question. First, on my father's behalf, and then second, on my own behalf. First, on my father's behalf, or from his perspective, so to say, there seems to be very little I can say on this. His fate is sealed, so to speak, and no amount of wishing, hoping, praying, fasting, or any other work of righteousness is going to change that. Indeed, and this statement may surprise some of you, I am not sure that God himself could reroute my father's final destiny to choose Christ at this point where he put back on this earth and given another shot. And maybe that'll become clear why I say that later on. I don't know, I don't think I mentioned it explicitly, but if you're curious, if I don't make it clear enough, feel free to ask me after this. I'm happy to explain. 
How about my own behalf, then? And why bring myself into the picture anyway? Well, first, for the simple reason that I love my father, and his death weighs heavily on me. Therefore, as a man who loses the use of his legs due to an automobile accident and must learn to live without a part of himself, so the person who loses someone close to them must also learn to live without that integral, integral part of his or her life. Secondly, though, and more importantly, as a Christian, one may find that they are dissatisfied with the situation and therefore dissatisfied with God because of how he let it occur. And as such, it could shipwreck someone's faith. Therefore, I approach this question because it matters to me and impacts in some way my own relationship with God. Such self-interest must not be confused with selfishness. Again, for no one blames the man who must learn how to function without the use of his legs. Thus, I have entitled my message, Grieving with God, for how does one cope with a potential or actual situation the outcome of which he or she is not content with. As you can see, this isn't limited to the passing of my father. This could have any bearing on the loss of a child, a close friend, any problem of evil magnified. You pick it. All right, so then, we will now proceed into deeper waters. While I have been extremely appreciative of the kind and benevolent responses of people and their love shown to me in the wake of my father's passing, I can truthfully say that I have not felt the prayers of all who have prayed for me. I know many people have prayed for me. I'm not aware of any peace that surpasses all understanding. However, I'm not denying that it actually is there. I haven't seen any miraculous interventions or signs that show me how God is supernaturally directing me in any of this, I haven't experienced any of this in this particular situation. Now, please note, I am not knocking anybody who has experienced these types of things in a similar situation. It's not what I'm doing. I'm merely sharing what my personal experience has been through this. So what do you tell a person who doesn't experience these things? And maybe there's just something wrong with me. You cannot rule that out just because I'm at the podium. You should know that. Folks might reassure me with the reminder that God is on the throne, but that is precisely where the problem comes in, is it not? For could not the almighty creator of the universe have brought about such a state of affairs that my father would have accepted instead of rejected Christ? Does not the infinite, omnipotent God, does he lack the resources or ability to do so? As Isaiah says, surely the arm of the Lord is not so short, is it? That sword cuts both ways. Can't God do these things? How does one make sense of this? Well, the answer, at least part of it, seems to me, by looking at it simply one argument at a time, carefully, slowly, assiduously, means with honesty. Do the best that you can. For example, how can a good and just God send people to hell? My emotion immediately rises up within me. It cries out, that is not fair. As Abraham said, does not the judge of all the earth do what is right? But my reason gently responds, perhaps 
It is not necessary for God to send people to hell as much as simply allow them to choose it themselves. As C.S. Lewis said, and I'll be quoting from him a number of times for the rest of this presentation, just a heads up. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it, says Lewis. But perhaps God does indeed send them, as the scripture seems to straightforwardly say. How is it fair to send these who do not want to go? Well, first, just because someone is sent somewhere, it doesn't follow that they likewise don't want to go. A child who is angry at their parent is a perfect example of this. When their parent sends them to their room, and they are not only glad to go there, but they are equally glad to march triumphantly on their way there, and after they've arrived, to slam the door and lock it behind them. Just because you're sent doesn't mean you don't want to go. The atheist philosopher John Stuart Mill said, I will call no being good who is not what I mean when I apply that epithet to my fellow creatures. And if such a creature can sentence me to hell for not so calling him, to hell I will go. Secondly, however, just because someone does not want to go somewhere does not mean they therefore will the conditions to not be there. Again, Lewis says, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end. I do not mean that the ghosts may not wish to come out of hell, but they certainly do not will even the first preliminary stages of that self-abandonment through which alone the soul can reach any good. There's a difference in not wanting to be somewhere, but willing the conditions to get out of where you are. The drug addict doesn't necessarily want to be addicted anymore, but they will not will the conditions all the time to be removed. Analogy can break down at some point. Finally, the question, how could a good and just God send people to hell, is really a misleading way to put the issue, in my opinion, for it emphasizes only the goodness of God, much to the detriment of his justice, and likewise, it smuggles in a kind of creaturely goodness that people generally yet incorrectly assume. In other words, the question should be put like this, not how can a good God send people to hell, but rather, how can a just God send people to heaven? Phrased that way, it should come as no surprise that neither my father nor myself nor any other created person who has the vestiges of sin within them should perish for all eternity. What is indeed wondrous is that God would condescend to save us, and that by giving the life of his Son. That is what's truly astounding. That's the mystery. Fine, I say, maybe God is just, maybe he's good. Still, could not the power of God bring it about such that my Father would have chosen to be saved? And not only him, but all who have perished. Lewis responds again, I would pay any price to be able to say truthfully, all will be saved. But my reason retorts, without their will or with it? If I say without their will, I at once perceive a contradiction. 
How can the supreme voluntary act of self-surrender be involuntary? If I say with their will, my reason replies, how if they will not give in? You see, there are some things that even God cannot do. Scripture testifies to this. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Hebrews 6.18, God cannot lie, it says. It's impossible. The students know this. God can't create square circles. He can't do it. I don't care if he has infinite power. can't create square circles. They're impossible things. It doesn't show that his power is limited. It shows that the concept is problematic. He can't choose not to be God. And he also can't force people to freely love him. Forced freedom is a contradiction. Lewis again. But now you see that the irresistible and indisputable, what can't be resisted at all and can't be disputed at all, the irresistible and indisputable are the two weapons which the very nature of God's scheme forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will would be for him useless. He cannot ravage. He can only woo. So if I say in my complaint, but God, I love my dad so much that I ask you to force him to be willing to accept Christ. My response to myself is, number one, I'm asking for a contradiction. My request is absolute nonsense. Number two, what I'm asking for is akin to a man saying of a girl that he loves, but she wants nothing to do with him, God, please make her love me. doesn't work. But if this is the case, how can I ever be happy knowing that I may get to heaven and find that my father is not there. I can't be, right? False, again, for two reasons. First, this complaint assumes that I love and am more merciful than God is. You never want to go there, right? We don't want to do that. Second, because God's very essence is goodness and he experiences joy, he is the most joyous being, so to speak, and your presence is fullness of joy in your right hand, pleasures forevermore. And he knows that people are in hell a lot better than I do. And he loves them a lot more than I do. And he loves my father a lot more than I do. Well, if that's the case, then it seems that nothing good can come out of this. Why could he not make things differently if nothing good can come out of this situation? How do I know that nothing good can come out of this? Am I omniscient? Do I know how everything is affected by everything? How things could be? can be, could have been, will be. All that exists in the mind of God. I can't make that complaint. 
and I can't make an arrogant statement that says nothing good can come out of this. In fact, even finitely, here are a list of good things that come out of this. God's justice is manifest by punishing sin. God's mercy is magnified to those in heaven. God's patience is manifest, not willing that any should perish, but all have eternal life, 2 Peter 3.9. He desired all men and desires all men to be saved, 1 Timothy 2.4. His love and his character are made manifest. God says in Ezekiel 18.23, he says, I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, rather that the wicked would turn and be saved. That's what God says. He gets no joy out of this. None at all. Do you guys see what I'm doing up here? I'm taking these objections that my mind presents to me, and I'm trying to grapple with them. And so far as I can see, all these objections come up short. These aren't the only ones, these are just some. But they come up short. Now, I confess to you that this doesn't make me feel better. Not one lick. But one aspect of grieving as a Christian is to shore up what I can know to be true about God, both from Scripture and good reasoning. And before anybody downplays good reasoning, I'll just slide in that it's God who gives us the ability to reason well, and he illuminates our minds. So these will help us to work out our salvation without being derailed by tragedy. So where does all this leave us? Well, first, I think it leaves us in what I call the God trap. And what I mean by that is that we already know enough about this world on the one hand to know that it offers no hope in satisfying the grief that we possess. None. You don't have to be beyond high school age to figure that out. You just think about it. You have a longing for the eternal and for answers that you don't get on this side of eternity. Where else are you going to turn? On the other hand, you know enough about God to understand that he's not just your only hope, but he's also your best one. However, you still have to make the call. And that's where faith comes in. Reason is enough to inform your mind as to what to choose, but it's not enough to coerce your will so as to make you choose. You still need to assent to, or believe, or acquiesce to, or have faith in, not what is against reason, but what simply goes beyond reason. That God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. How does he do that in these tragedies? We don't always know. I don't know. But I believe it. Second, with regard to answers, <laughs> this gets me nowhere. But despite all that we've discussed, the questions that are most important to me that I want answers to are precisely the ones that I do not have access to on this side of eternity. Where's my father? Why did things have to happen this way? 
I don't know. And unless God divinely reveals it to me, I'm not going to. And I suspect I wouldn't understand it. I'm just throwing that out there. Because Job offered a similar complaint, and he got over 100 questions from God, who still didn't give him the answer at the end. God just showed him that he didn't know a whole lot. So I imagine I wouldn't be satisfied with the answer anyway. I wouldn't understand it. With regard to faith, however, and I'm wrapping up here, our discussion gets me back to baseline. It brings me to a place of sober consideration where I can take a good look at the world and weigh it against what I know to be true about God and His promises. And then I can make the call. Am I going to go all in trusting Jesus in this tragedy? Or am I going to play the fence, living half in, half out, or even walk away altogether? So, how can we cope with tragedy? First, to realize that this side of eternity is not the whole story. Got to keep that in the forefront of our minds. It would, be, it would feel dismal if this was all there was. But there will come a day when we will be with the Lord and so in a better position to ask and to get our answers from Him. Answers delayed are not necessarily answers denied. We need to be patient. There will come a day when we can ask God face to face. And I suspect then we'll see the bigger picture of the role of tragedy both in our lives and the lives of others. And I also suspect that we're going to find God to be a lot more gracious and merciful and good than we tend to fancy him while here on this side of heaven. I suspect that. What else? Well, realize even now that Jesus is the only one who fully understands what you're going through when you face tragedy, and you can bring your thoughts and feelings to him. He is the only one who can completely identify with how you're experiencing tragedy. You see, I love my father, and somebody else in here may have lost their father. And we can commiserate to an extent. However, there's, a, there's an upper limit to that, because I feel about my father a particular way, while you feel about your father a particular way, and our fellowship stops at that upper limit. However, with Christ, who created my dad, who knows my dad, who knows me, who loves him more than I do. He's somebody I can fully commiserate with. Don't spend time not commiserating with him when he's there. Finally, allow God to use painful events in our lives to draw us closer to him. Easier said than done, obviously. In these situations, we have an opportunity either to get bitter or get better. But more importantly, before tragedy strikes, if it strikes, take the time to grow in your understanding of who God is so that if it does strike, you're not going to be at a loss about how to deal with it. Let's pray. And if there's anybody in this room who still holds a grudge against God because they didn't get to say all the words they wanted to say to somebody, 
or something seemingly inexplicable happens and you have no explanation. That God took somebody out of your life prematurely. Like I expected my dad to be here longer. Let's not develop a root of bitterness because that only goes downhill. Let's confess it before the Lord and ask him to help us out of it so that we can live how he would have us live in this life. Father in heaven, Lord, your word says that it's better to be in a house of mourning than a house of feasting. And death is the end of every man, and the wise should take, us, take this to heart. Help us to reflect on the brevity of life, what's important in our lives right now. Help us to weigh that against what we know to be true about your person. If we don't know you at all, please help us call upon the name of the Lord and so be saved. If we don't know what you're like, help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of you and the Lord Jesus. And Lord, for all of us who are struggling, whether now, have been in the past, or will be in the future, would you please guide us with your good hand? You know that we are but dust. You know our frame. Thank you for condescending to communicate with us, to save us and to promise that you have come, you will come again. And we look forward to the day of seeing you and Lord willing our loved ones. To you be the glory forever and ever. Amen.